Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. When it comes to picking the perfect treats for your dog, Stuart makes the choice easy by keeping it real. Real ingredients, real nutrients, real benefits. Stuart dog treats are free from additives, corn, soy, wheat, and grains. Plus, they're freeze-dried to lock in all the great nutrition and natural flavor your furry friend deserves. Stewart freeze-dried dog treats. Big, tail-wagging nutritional benefits. Available on Amazon.com today. It's harder to focus than ever these days. Thankfully, C4 has reinvented the energy drink game with C4 Smart Energy, the only energy drink clinically proven to provide enhanced mental focus, containing 200 milligram of natural caffeine, a blend of vitamins, and zero sugar. It was formulated to support your well-being and help you feel your best, all while enhancing mental focus. From your brain to your body, C4 Smart Energy does it all and tastes amazing. Look for Smart Energy in the beverage aisle at your local Kroger, Albertsons, and Safeway grocery stores. C4 Smart Energy. Stay focused. It's 3 o'clock somewhere. Time for a My Mochi ice cream snack. My Mochi ice cream is cool, creamy scoops of premium ice cream wrapped in sweet, pillowy dough. And get this, all of My Mochi's fabulous flavors like strawberry, mango, double chocolate, and cookies and cream are only around 80 calories per piece. Talk about a guilt-free, indulgent experience. Each box of My Mochi ice cream has six perfectly portioned, gluten-free mochis that are great for grab-and-go. So feel good while curbing your afternoon cravings or the midnight munchies. Yeah, you know who you are with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. Where 
out of the wagon. The wagon is too slow. Can't you ride? It's not that he can't ride. How is it you put it home? They're dangerous at both ends and crafty in the middle. Why would I want anything with a mind of its own bobbing about between my legs? Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London. You just never know. This week we come to you from... Live from around the world, it's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one frontline travel news journalist. Get on the phone now and call 1-888-887-3837. That's 1-888-88-PETER. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, the travel detective, Peter Greenberg. And welcome aboard another edition of Peter Greenberg Worldwide. I hope you're having a wonderful weekend wherever you happen to be. Let me tell you where we happen to be. Get out your maps, boys and girls. 37 degrees, 21 minutes north. 121 degrees, 53 minutes west. We're in San Jose, California, which may surprise you to learn that it's the third largest city in the state of California. And so many things to talk about this place. We're actually from the Fairmont Hotel here in San Jose. My first guest knows the way to San Jose. And uh, with all due respect to Dion Warwick, he's the mayor. And his name is uh, Sam Licardo. How are you, sir? Peter, great to be with you. I mean, you've got quite a storied history. You went to Harvard. You were a prosecutor in the U.S. Attorney's Office. And now you're the mayor. Yeah, they'll let anyone be a mayor these days. <laughs> oh, we have some, you open that door. Don't do that. <laughs> Bottom line, it's safe to say, and this is not, as no disrespect to San Jose, most Americans are geographically ignorant. Yeah. They don't even know where Cleveland is. So how do you put San Jose on the map? Yeah, you know, the 10th largest city in the country. And people don't even know that. Right, in the heart of Silicon Valley. I know it's often the case that, that we don't quite bat our weight in terms of reputation, but clearly uh, we are a fast-growing major city and the center for innovation in this country, if not the world. And uh, I feel very blessed to live in a community with some of the most creative, innovative people on the planet. And it goes beyond just Silicon Valley. I mean, you've got so many other things going on here. We do. Uh, this is an incredibly diverse city. Almost 40% of us were born in a foreign country, and uh, that's been... Paging Donald Trump. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Attention, Donald Trump. I'm sorry. Donald wouldn't get a lot of votes here. I mean, no. we, you know, we have the largest ethnically Vietnamese population outside of Vietnam. Uh, we've got probably the largest Mexican-American population anywhere north of, of L.A. Uh, we've got the largest Sigurura in the country. This is an incredible uh, amalgam of, of, of cultures, and it has been really the secret sauce of our success here. Speaking of secret sauce, you got great restaurants. We do. That helps. Go to Japantown, one of the last of the remaining Niamachi in the country, and you'll find fantastic G uh, Japanese food. You go to Little Saigon, uh, you go to Willow Street, you'll get great uh, Mexican food. We have uh, some of the best offerings around. And you got the Super Bowl. That doesn't hurt. We'll take it. <laughs> it's all good. But you know, the Super Bowl, I, I, I tell this to other mayors and other governors and other, and other leaders of, world, of, of countries in the world, it's one thing to get excited that you're gonna get the, the Olympics, for example. It's only an event that lasts two and a half weeks, and then you got to fill those hotel rooms, right? I mean, there's a tendency to get all excited about one event, and then people drop the ball. 
you get some notification. I mean, you get some some exposure, but you got to go beyond that, right? Yeah, you do. And, and there's a lot of preparation, obviously, for an event like this. Uh, the good news is it brings up brings in a lot of revenue. It helps us pay for a lot of that preparation. Exactly. And you got an airport that can handle it. We do. Yeah. And it's been uh, growing fast. We just invested over a billion dollars in upgrading uh, the San Jose Mineta International Airport. And it is increasingly now an international airport. We've secured four international flights in just the last 11 months alone. You know, I was discussing this at dinner last night. We have an airlift problem in this country with our domestic carriers with the big three. It's sort of like they're not, they don't want to fly where they don't want to fly anymore. They're not flying to compete domestically. They're just, they're not looking for market share anymore. They're looking for yield. So the opportunities that you have here in San Jose are for people who want to do nonstop long haul service, not even in this country. Yeah, yeah, it's really incredible and, and pretty ironic that we're being fed by airlines that want to get us to London, to Frankfurt, to Beijing, uh, and we can't get a meeting to get a direct flight to D.C. or New York. It's, a, it's outrageous. Yeah, it's, it's really remarkable. And really, it speaks to some extent to the sort of the herd mentality of domestic airlines. I think, you know, we've got some work to do, I think, uh, to clearly communicate uh, that uh, airlines need to serve the, 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 the screaming demand that's out there. And your dominant carrier is Southwest. Southwest Airlines, yep. We love Southwest. And I can't can't imagine why, but but the thing, same thing in St. Louis. I mean, if you take a look at the models where Southwest Airlines is now the dominant carrier, it's where the big carriers didn't care anymore. Yeah, it's interesting. They certainly find the niche, and increasingly, I think the big carriers are going to care about San Jose uh, at the scale that we're growing uh, and the extent of investment we're seeing now, major companies moving in. Apple just took up 4 million square feet in North San Jose. Google moved in. We're seeing extraordinary growth. And they got to fly their people. Yeah, they got to move people. And fundamentally, those CEOs are telling the airlines, we need flights here. Speaking of that, there's one flying over us right now. Yes, brought to you by Southwest Airlines. (laughs) But it's interesting. I remember when when the airport was called this, you know, international airport, you had one flight on American Airlines to Tokyo on an old MD-11, and, the, and you didn't even have a customs facility. You had a trailer. <laughs> do you remember that? I they had, do. A, they had a trailer. <laughs> I think of one customs agent named Vern. And, and, and I used to come back from Tokyo to, to San Jose simply because it was the easiest city in the world to clear customs. It was one guy named Vern going, get in, come on. Right? The good news is Vern's still here. He's happy to see you. <laughs> yeah, but he's busier now. Yes, yes. Uh, we hope he's going to keep getting busier. What's the biggest surprise for people who've never been to San Jose? The first thing that they that hits them, they said, I had no idea. Yeah, I, th- I think uh, folks are really surprised as they come into our, our downtown. I think they expect uh, that this is going to be a sleepy little town. Uh, what they are going to see is a city where the skyscape is changing by the month. Uh, we see an enormous amount of development, enormous amount of growth, uh, and an incredibly diverse city that's really become vibrant. I mean, Mr. Mayor, you also look at San Jose as a hub. I mean, you, if you just base yourself here, you get to go anywhere. Yeah, not a bad thing. I mean, you know, within a half hour, I can get to the beach. Uh, maybe a little longer, longer drive, I can get to the wine country. Uh, we can get up to, to the mountains to go skiing within a couple hours of driving. Uh, this is a great place to live and certainly a great place to work just because of the incredible amenities right around us. You're also growing. I mean, the number your population is exploding. Yeah, we got over a million 
And uh, we, we like it that way. Uh, certainly, uh, growth is something that a lot of folks fear, but uh, we're seeing incredible opportunities, particularly in the downtown, to grow up and vertically. Uh, and I think that adds to the vibrancy of our core. So the bottom line is if you're living in San Jose and you need to get to Cleveland, good luck. But if you need to get to China, you're in. <laughs> if you don't mind a little bit of a layover in Beijing, you're okay. That's Hainan Airlines, right? That's correct. That's right. <laughs> Who else are you talking to these days? Uh, you know, uh, our tech uh, leaders are telling us they, they definitely want more flights to the East Coast, and so we're working on that. Uh, but we're seeing a lot of success now in Asia. Uh, we hope See, we'll I'm surprised to... you don't have more flights on JetBlue. They only have like one flight a day. Yeah, it's incredible. One flight to New York on JetBlue. I think there's something like 37 or 38 flights out of SFO. And, and we looked at who's flying out of SFO, and about 40% of the butts in the seats are coming from San Jose in our they're county. Dri they're driving, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they're all stuck in traffic. Oh. <laughs> and getting no frequent flyer points for that. Amen. All right. Mayor Sam Licardo, thank you so much, sir. I really appreciate that. Peter, it's and, been a real pleasure. And good luck getting some more airlines here because the airport can handle it. You have the gates. Yeah, we got the room and we got a, the most modern airport in the country. Riding along in my automobile. My baby beside me at the wheel. Cruising and playing the radio. With no particular place to go Now everybody knows about San Jose Or they think they know about San Jose In terms of Silicon Valley and innovation But my next guest knows all about innovation Because he's actually the president and CEO Of San Jose's Tech Museum of innovation. His name is Tim Ritchie. How are you, sir? Great to be here, Peter. Thanks. I'm great. I mean, is it a wow? The tech is a wow, and Silicon Valley is a wow. What we try to show is that Silicon Valley stands for how you use technology to make the world a better place, how you use technology to solve problems. So it's a museum all about using technology to solve problems and, and do great things. And it gets kids involved with that technology. Hundreds and thousands of kids. Kids come. like me. Yeah, that's right. Kids of all ages. Because it's interactive. Everything about it's interactive. See, that's what I, you love it. You mean, you mean, Tim, I got buttons to push and levers to pull? You have robots to build, and you can learn about sequencing and cybersecurity and all kinds of things. So you can become a hacker. There's a lot of hacking that goes on. We have actually hackathons in the afternoons come and the on. evenings. Come on. Large hackathons. Hundreds of people come. We have a bunch of kids uh, who come throughout the year for a program called Hack the Future, where they're building websites, and they're building games, and they're hacking through things. We have a lot of civic hacking, too, where people will come and take on a big civic problem, and whole groups come to the tech in the afternoons and the weekends to use our spaces for hackathons. And they go all night long? At the tech, they have not yet, because we're just uh, a little bit too traditional. They could, and they would if we let Something them. Something tells you you're going to be doing overnight soon. Yes, we will be. <laughs> What's the most surprising exhibit that you have there that people aren't expecting? Well, the most surprising one is the one that will open actually on March the 17th, which is going to be the Biodesign Studio. It'll be the largest public biomaker space in the world. And you'll be able to come Which in. means what? It means you can come in and create things with synthetic DNA. And that you can actually create new things. like new So basically, if you're lonely and don't have a girlfriend, you have a solution for them? Uh, well, uh, hopefully not that. But, uh, I had to ask. I mean, yeah. you, know, you could come in and create some, some very cool stuff. And also, you'll learn the basics of biology, exponential growth, sequencing, and the like. And then you'll actually be able to go into a lab and use real biological materials to create you stuff. You see, that's what I was missing in high school, honestly. Because 
no textbook is going to help me do that. That's right. Right? I mean, but if I can actually see it and see cause and effect and action and consequence, I get it then. That's right. And, and really, that's once again what is so prized here in Silicon Valley. We say we're a culture where we permit and actually celebrate failure. So in all of our... Oh, exhibits, I'm going to fit right in. Are you kidding? Yeah. Well, in all of them, you, you get better and you get better and you get better. All that means is, you know, you weren't so great the first time. And then the second time and the third time and the fourth time. So all our exhibits, whether it's building robots or building new biological materials, uh, are about, about that. Why don't you just change the name of the museum to the museum of you weren't so great the first time? You know, that's a good idea. We actually want to change the name because we're not a museum. We're a place where innovation happens in real time. And you're, so a, you're a center. We are a center. We're, we're an innovation place. I'm not sure what the new name yeah, should be. Yeah, because the word museum has with it sort of a, a, a removal aspect of it. You know, That's you're, right. You're watching something at a distance. Right, and, and museum sort of implies curated. Static. It, to me, it means static. Right, or things you've collected, things you want to preserve. This is really all about a place where people can discover their power to solve problems. In real time. That's right. Wow. What's the biggest gizmo you got there? Let's see the biggest gizmo. We have a, a actually a fun ball machine outside where you never can figure out where the balls start, where they stop. It's kind of a big contraption. But I, I, and we have an, a number of robots on the inside too. The biggest gizmo, I would have to say it's going to go back to this, this uh, new exhibit we're going to do on biodesign. It's going to be unbelievable, best in the world. And how many robots do you have? Oh, my goodness. Um, on the floor at any given time, probably 12 different robots uh, doing different things. And late at night, do they all come up and sing? Or No, no, they, they rest at night, Peter. You sure? Yeah. This is not like Night at the Museum Part 3. Well, not, not, not to my experience. We'll see. Not even any rumors about that? There have been rumors, but I haven't been there too, too late. I'm assuming you're working actively with the schools, too? Yeah, so... We work with every single school district in the Bay Area, and then actually a lot from the Central Valley come as well. So in school groups, we'll have about 140,000 kids a year. But then, of course, we have between four and 500,000 generally, so kids come back. But every single school system, and we also do professional development for teachers. Open seven days a week? Open seven days a week, just a couple days a year that we're closed. And also in the evenings, we're beginning to have a lot of things for adults. We have a program called Creative Collisions that puts together strange things like one was on ballet. That sounds like a bad pickup line. Well, that's, uh, yeah, that's right. So ballet plus wearables, space plus art, 3D printing plus the body. So we do a lot of different things for adults in the evening. Wow, very, very cool. And admission? Admission for a, a, a fa uh, for an adult is twenty four ninety nine. For kids, is a good bit less than that. The big deal, the big deal is memberships because a whole family can be a member for one hundred twenty five dollars. And then home. you have unlimited, unlimited, yeah. unlimited acti activity with the robots late at night when they sing. Come on, oh, that's right. Okay, maybe so. Uh, come on, they're gonna sing, <laughs> dance. There, there's definitely, definitely some room for creativity for all that. I love it. Toto? Feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. knows a little bit about this place because he's got the best title. He's the curator of the collections of History San Jose, probably the, uh, what, 
the largest in the in the valley, right? Yes, uh, it's actually the largest uh, regional collection of uh, in Northern California. Collection of what? Artifacts, uh, archives, different material related to the rich history of our valley here. And you talk about a rich history. My question is, okay. Most people don't think San Jose has a history. You know what I'm saying? I mean, right. they, maybe they, they, they heard it on their radar, and that's about it. Well, people think you know, high-tech, uh, new things. But right. actually, San Jose is the oldest uh, city in California. It was the first city settled by the Spaniards back in November 1777. And how did that happen? Well, at the time, you had the missions and the presidios, and you needed a method of providing goods and services for those uh, for those items. And you had a presidium uh, in Monterey and also San Francisco. And basically on a map, uh, San Jose is about halfway, be- halfway between. And plus we have the rich uh, valley soil in terms of growing crops. So in the collections that you have, I mean, do you go back to Indians? <laughs> no, uh, other than some uh, mortars and pestles and right. a few... Uh, just one or two baskets, but we do have what's called the Pueblo Papers. These are documents that were written starting about 1778 to 1851. Uh, there were communications between initially Spain and then Mexico, of course, with uh, the Pueblo here in San Jose. And, of course, there is the Wild Wild West. <laughs> yes. Wild Wild West uh, started here in, in you know, statehood in 1850. Uh, actually, San Jose was the first state capital of the our great state anything to do with the gold rush gold rush well once again we were a supplier you had people coming from san francisco going out to the gold fields you you had people passing through san jose going and buying materials and whatnot so they would pass through here and buy materials and a lot of folks like like many others uh, from san jose went up to the gold fields found out that they had no riches up there but they came back here that but they found larger riches supplying the uh the, the miners that did go to the fields. When people come to visit your collection, what's the biggest surprise for them? The breadth of uh, the collection that we have here. You know, once again, going back to 1780 to uh, to the present day, because history is this morning, and so we have items spanning that uh, that duration. Now, you're also the vice president of the California Trolley and Railroad Corporation. Uh, well, my my primary interest is railroad history. All right, now we're talking. Okay, <laughs> you bet. I mean. You know, here we are in the in the era of people talking about high speed rail in California. You're going high speed. Wait a minute. Let's talk about you know, low speed. Low speed. High speed. Well, it's it's, uh, it's rather interesting. Even though you look at railroads, they were the first connections, communication devices, and methods of uh, of commerce uh, going back 150 years ago. And those same lines are still being used for high speed rail decisions. Also. Those same lines were used for initially for the uh, cable fiber optic solutions, like Sprint was an offshoot of Southern Pacific. Well, it's, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I remember, because my mother remembered, and then she told me, of course, uh, my grandfather was the first passenger on the first transcontinental uh, flight in the United States. Wow. And, um, and they gave each passenger, you'll appreciate this being a rail buff, they gave each passenger sort of a fold-out map, hard car- hard back fold-out map of the United States showing the route of the plane. Mm-hmm. The route of the plane was the railroad tracks. Right. And and 
And in fact, they had train spotters and plane spotters with the exact same people who were following the route of the plane. And when the plane flew over, they got to a phone and called to say it just, it just it, flew it, it over. It was right here, right? Yeah. And, you know, pilots, they talk about IFR, in, <laughs> instrument flight rules. In those days, IFR meant I follow the railroad. <laughs> Interesting. It's true. Interesting that you mentioned radios. Uh, did you know that the world's first uh, commercial broadcast was about a block and a half away, f away from our location right here? That's pretty cool. In 1909. Right. And I think our engineer did that show. I'm just kidding. No, <laughs> sorry, Jeff. <laughs> no, but that's very cool. And, and, and the thing is, there are a lot of firsts here. There is. There is. And so that's, that's why we're, you know, we have so much diversity into this valley presently, but also in the past. And I, I think that really uh, created this, uh, hate, uh, the creativity that we have in innovation that came from this valley. And people can come visit your organization and your location. Where are you? Yes, we're located just a few miles south of uh, downtown here in a place called History Park. Uh, south, and We have a 14-acre site and about 25 buildings on it. In fact, one of the buildings is what? The oldest structure, right? Uh, well, that's, that structure is actually here in downtown San Jose. Ah, it, but it's part, but it's part, it's of, part of our collection, yes. That structure is an adobe that was built in 1797 and is the oldest uh, structure in San Jose. And it survived the earthquake. Yes. Um, Multiple. Hello? Uh, this is your captain speaking. There is absolutely no cause for alarm. Get your motor running. Head out on the highway. Looking for adventure. If you haven't been paying attention, in about two weeks, there's a small little sporting event going to happen not too far from where we are right now called the Super Bowl. You'll see it on CBS, which is my network, uh, and it's the 50th, it's the 50th Super Bowl, and uh, it's um, perhaps uh, appropriate that it be played here. Joining me now, the sports columnist for the San Jose Mercury News, Mark Purdy. So, are you getting excited about this? Uh, sure, professionally, yeah. yeah. Personally, eh, you know, sometimes, but. This is the biggest sporting event in North America. It's the biggest television show. In the world. In the world. And uh, I've covered, but this will be my 33rd Super Bowl. So, uh, but who's counting? Yeah. yeah. Uh, makes me feel really old. So it's been amazing to watch that event proceed from what really was just a football game to a now more than week-long festival of Whatever. Festival I, I, of Revenue. Yes, Festival <laughs> of Revenue. I, I call it the least zero-sum event I cover, Peter, because every year they glom onto it and, and create more and more revenue opportunities, as you say. Sure. And how much memorabilia do you end up wearing, Mark? <laughs> the truth. Well, here's, here's, here's a secret yeah. for some of you, maybe your listeners, if they're coming. If you wait till the day after the game... You can get everything for... Oh my everything God. goes half price. So if you're sticking around um, the Bay Area at the day after the game and you're not too picky, you can walk in. They'll have NFL stores all around. Oh, sure. They have pop-up stores. Yes. Yeah. And, and you walk in there the day after the game. It's 50% off. So that's kind of when I – if I do my shopping, that's when I go in and buy my wife something and maybe buy myself something. Uh-huh. So but, I, I, buy, <laughs> I have a cap like from every year. Of course. You have to have the cap. Yeah, absolutely. I have I have sweatshirts and stuff like that and jackets and stuff and then of course yeah. you go really yeah you know? right so I think uh, the Jacksonville cap is my favorite no I don't know I, it, it's it is amazing to just see that you know this is the second 
uh, Super Bowl we've had in the Bay Area. The first was in Palo Alto, 1985. And uh, that, just to see it between from that to this. and 1985, was that the Bengals? It was the uh, 49ers and the Dolphins. Ah. Dan Marino and Joe Montana. Because the Bengals must have done 86 then. Yeah. He, uh, Bengals were Super Bowl 16 and Super Bowl 19, I think. No, yeah. no, Super Bowl... I'm sorry. The, okay. the, the Roman you, numerals. You, you know win how nothing. it is. You win nothing. You know how it is. <laughs> okay. But uh, the, the interesting story about that one, real quick, was you know, that was at Old Stanford Stadium, yeah. which, which was a dump, and it had dirt underneath the seats that was built in 1920. So the guy who run, ran the game for the NFL came in here, Jim Steig, and said, in the summer before, and there was like tomato plants growing up through the bleachers and and in the end zone where the students at marijuana plants growing up there and he calls up pete roselle and says we got work to do here and and they always all wood bleachers people are going to get splinters if they sit there so what are they going to do jim steeg hears about this company apple down the street <laughs> drives down talks to a 28 29 year old steve jobs says you know for uh, two bucks a, a seat cushion you can put a, an apple logo on eighty thousand seats there and jobs who was not a football fan at all uh says uh Let's see. Does the math? He says, "Well, that's not very much money. How about if I get a, uh, uh, and how about I'll give you like two and a quarter and put a, a commercial for Apple on the big screen at halftime?" And Stieg says, "Okay, maybe we can do that, but first we got to get a big screen." <laughs> <laughs> so that prompted the NFL to get its first jumbo screen, and in fact, Jobs. And so those seat cushions today are collector's items. Oh my God! Now, obviously, the stadium is somewhat improved for this year. Well, yes, you know now it's going to be played at Levi's Stadium, which is uh, the 49ers' new stadium sure. in Santa Clara, about uh, four or five miles from where we sit. And how do you like that stadium? Uh, it, it's. This is where I, you know I'm 63 years old, Peter. So this is where I've never felt more like a 63 year old guy. I go out there. It's it's an it's a remarkable building, and it has all the bells and whistles. Uh, but you know what? My my observation about it, because I'm a cynical sports com, is like when you go to there to watch the game. It's like they kind of don't want you to watch the game. You know, there's too got, much stuff going they're, on. They've got a Yahoo Sports Fantasy Lounge, all you know, all sponsored and everything. They got a museum. They got two. Michael Mina's got a restaurant in there. They got uh, uh, a virtual reality area. They got the Bud Light beer patio. Sorry for mentioning all these sponsors, but it's okay. They got uh, and these amazing club areas with huge high tech stuff in it. Right. And uh, so, so what you're basically saying is the game is incidental. Well, you know, and the owner of the team is in his 30s, and he's, his name is Jed York, and I've asked him about this, and I, he says, well, people of my generation, when they, they get pretty good at home with the high-def TV and everything, we've got to give them something when they come to the stadium that's, like, value-added and, and stuff to do. But I think what it's created is that, at least for 49ers games, is the game's no good. People just go under the stands and well, go have their fun. Considering the past season of the 49ers, I, I'd be at that Yahoo Lounge, too. This <laughs> is true. And, and so... But they're accessing all the amenities there. I think for the Super Bowl, it'll be fabulous. People will, you know, the, that, that crowd will be kind of dazzled by all the bells and whistles, as I say. So, um, you know, here we go. I, I, it's, it's kind of a perfect Super Bowl venue. And, and then being in the middle of Silicon Valley, I think, will, will be kind of sexy. Well, it's a great showcase for San Jose. It is. And, uh, you know, a, a lot of people don't know a lot about San Jose, which I totally understand. It's, it's more of a working – San Francisco is the tourist city in the Bay Area. The way I always describe the Bay Area, Peter, it's, it's like this organism that is – depending on how many counties you include, seven to eight million people. And there are three major cities. San Jose is the largest, a million. San Francisco is 800,000. Oakland's 400,000. You add those three together, and it's still just 2.2 million. So most people who live in the Bay Area live in between, live in all these cities. But right. they access each of these different cities for different things. San Jose has been a working city from day one. That's how it was founded. The the the, the uh, priests at the mission in San Francisco and the soldiers sent 
civilians down here to uh, establish so they could raise crops and, and livestock for them, gave them a tax break to do so. And it's interesting, here we are in 2016, and the dynamic still holds, right? San Francisco's kind of the tourist city where people, you know, and people look at themselves in the mirror. Down here we work, and San Jose's done not a very good job, in my mind, of, uh, of uh, uh, presenting itself as, as a tourist destination. Um, I'm sure the people at Team San Jose might disagree with me about that, but they, we've not done a real good job of, uh, um, you know, letting people know all the interesting stuff that goes on down here. Because so, there's a lot of stuff going on. It's, it is, and it's, uh, I've lived here since 1984, and uh, it's, it's a fascinating place. Fascinating place. And it keeps you here. It, it does keep me here because uh, whatever room I walk into, I'm usually the dumbest guy, so I learn something. Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. But I would walk 500 miles and I would walk 500 more. It's the feet of man who walks a thousand miles to fall down and shoot your I'm honored to have our next guest here. I've, I've watched him play all my life. Um, and he's a local boy, actually. Uh, Heisman Trophy winner, by the way, went to Stanford. I, now, I didn't watch you play with the Patriots, but I certainly watched you play for the Raiders. Okay, yeah, you know, we go back a few years. Jim Plunkett, was, by the way. Yeah, and I was originally drafted by the uh, the Patriots back in 1971 out of Stanford. I spent my first five years there and then spent two in San Francisco and my last ten with the uh, Oakland L.A. Raiders. Oh, I, I saw you play both in Oakland and at the Coliseum in L.A. Mm-hmm. But let's talk about San Jose, because this is where you live. Uh, th- well, I live close by. This yeah. is where I grew up. Yeah. Uh, went to grammar school, high school, and uh, went to Stanford, just, which isn't too far away. But yeah, this is, this is what I call home. What's special about San Jose to you? Uh, well, it, first of all, it is my home. This is where I grew up. This is where I made my friends. This is where I you know, kind of defined myself as a person. And, uh, and back in my younger days, it was a, more of a rural community, you know, farms, ranch lands, a uh, lot of produce, a lot of uh, fruits. And organized uh, and organized sports. Uh, yeah, organized sports back in the day when you didn't have to pay for it. You know, it was part of your education growing up. Uh, you know, flag football, basketball, you name it, uh, starting as, for me, in the third grade is when I started really participating in team sports. Is it really true that when you were 14, you threw the ball 60 yards? Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I couldn't tell you, you know, uh, a lot of the fields we grew up on didn't have lines on them, you know, but uh, somebody uh, was measuring. Oh, yeah. But and, you know, I, I, right now I'm six foot three and I was six foot three ever since I was 13 years old. So, you know, I grew up uh, rather quickly uh, uh, back then and uh, had, I guess, had a strong arm. We've got the Super Bowl coming up not far from here in Santa Clara. Right. Uh, how's the game changed for you? Uh, well, it's more of a passing league nowadays, you know, a lot of uh, spread offenses, uh, protecting the quarterback, uh, uh, and uh, just a lot more offense going on nowadays. Most of the rules uh, favor the offense and the receivers and the quarterbacks, for that matter. And When you were playing, they were you were targeted. 
Oh, we were dead meat. You know, we, you know <laughs> there was no two-step rule. A guy can yeah, get a 10-yard head start and knock the quarterback's head off. There was no Brady rule where you, you, if you're on the ground, you can't crawl and fight, which, you know, you would expect somebody to do. You have to get back on your feet and make the tackle. You can't hit the quarterback above the shoulders or below the waist. Uh, if you run outside the pocket, you can throw the ball away. You wouldn't be penalized for grounding. But you got penalized for grounding whatever you did then. Yeah. If you threw the ball and there's no uh, receiver around, uh, it was a penalty. And, uh, you know, things are so much different now. Different now. I mean, we talk about concussion protocol, the, the right. two favorite words of everybody these days, right? Concuss- right. I love sportscasters using the word protocol. I right. mean, come on, please stop. <laughs> but the guy got hit. How about that? But the thing is, when you were playing, that didn't. That wasn't. The, that wasn't even part of the of the game in that respect. No, you'd go back to the sidelines. They'd give you some uh, ammonia nitrate to to clear your head, and then you know they'd ask you questions. You know, what team are you on? What's your name? And then they'd hold up like four fingers, and they would ask you how many fingers am I holding up? But if you said three, that was close enough. <laughs> yeah, you'd go back right back on the field. You know, and that's just the way it was back then. I can imagine before you even went out in the field, they said. It's going to be four fingers. Just four. <laughs> yeah. Just go with four. Yeah, remember that, will you? <laughs> I have a somewhat interesting travel story regarding somebody I think you may have known. I was on a flight once from Denver to Los Angeles. Early morning flight, 7 in the morning. And I travel with all my newspapers and magazines. I, I'm still old school. I'm, I'm lugging bags. And I'm sitting on the plane reading my paper. If I see something I like, I would tear it out and put it away. And next thing you know, I'm lifted out of my seat. Literally lifted out of my seat with my head up into the ceiling of the plane. And a guy in my face going, stop reading, you're driving me nuts. John Matusak. Ah, well, a lot of things drove him nuts. So, you know, you're not alone. <laughs> but that was, that, those are crazy days on that team. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, the cast of characters, uh, you know, could really fill a book, make a movie, you name it. We had all kinds of guys. And a lot of the guys were, you know, cast off such as I was from uh, uh, the Niners and uh, had trouble with their previous teams. But somehow Mr. Davis could fit them all in there and get them to play together. But basically, basically he was running Boys Town. Uh, yeah, a little bit, maybe. I mean, you guys are like, Men, well, let's call it Men's Town, okay? Okay, uh, Men's Town, but everybody had an edge. Oh, yeah, without without question. And uh, they were a tough group of men to, to put together. But, you know, Mr. Davis was able to do that, along with John Madden and Tom Flores. Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash Travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. We've been speaking with, in my book, Hall of Fame quarterback Jim Plunkett. In fact, you were the only quarterback to start and win two Super Bowls and not go to the Hall of Fame. Yeah, what, what's up with that? I don't know, you know. Uh, hopefully, maybe someday before I I go away, uh, uh, I'll get there. If not, you know, I'm not going to lose any sleep over it. But, you know, people forget that you did that. You know, I didn't I mean, forget. I know. That's why I just brought it up. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess, you know, time flies. You know, time goes on. Uh, the numbers that uh, these quarterbacks put up today, you know, I don't even approach. Uh, it's just a different ball game. But, you know, I was successful in my own way. It came towards the end of my career uh, without a doubt. But, you know, and I struggled those early years. But, you know, I, I finally got it done. And I was very proud of that fact. Well, I, I would believe, uh, believe, I actually do believe that you were participating at a time when it was a rougher game. No, no doubt about it. Without question. Without about, it was a rougher game in the stands too. By the way, <laughs> I mean, I would go to a game at the Coliseum with with nine one one ready to call. I mean, those those the, you weren't just having fights on the field. There were fights in the stands all the time. Uh, kind of, yeah. That did happen. Uh, it's it's. I think it's a quieter situation now, even in the stands. 
obviously. But, you know, the game is still uh, hard-hitting, you know, rock'em, sock'em kind of uh, event that goes on, you know, every Sunday, Monday, Thursday nights, you name it. Uh, uh, and they still hit hard. They still, you know, knock your head off, so to speak. But uh, the rules have changed quite a bit. I would suspect, based on the ratings that I've seen for Thursday night football, that if they wanted to do Tuesday night games, Wednesday night games, or, you know, they'd still get people watching. I think they would. Uh, but sometimes even I forget there's a Thursday night game. I'm sorry. But, you know, I do, and I, you know, I, I still participate. I still work for the Raiders during the season. Uh, and, uh, you know, there are a lot of so games. So are the Raiders play. going to L.A.? Uh, you know, I cannot answer that. What what just went down uh, this last couple of days, though, the, the answer seems to be no at this point. Right. Uh, but, you know, things change in a heartbeat. Uh, you know, me personally, I, you know, I would like to see the Raiders stay in Oakland. I think that's where they belong. That's where they made their, their history. Uh, that's where the fans' base is so tremendous. Uh, I would like to see them get a new stadium right there somewhere, you know, either on the same spot or right nearby. Because that stadium is old. Oh, it's 1966 old, and uh, and it it's it's actually older than that when you walk into it. You know, it's it's pretty beat up. And yet, the Super Bowl this year is being played in a brand new stadium. It is, you know, across the bay uh, here in San Jose or Santa Clara, actually. Uh, Do you and, notice something different in terms of the noise or in terms of on on, on the field? Uh, it's hard to say. You know, I mean, noisy stadiums remain noisy, uh, no matter how you configure them, uh, and the fans are just as uh, vociferous out there uh, screaming. Uh, for their football teams, uh, but a lot of like supposedly the Seattle outdoor stadium, as compared to their indoor stadium prior, they configured in a way where the noise bounces off, and you, it's still very, very loud up there in Seattle in the outdoor stadium. So that's the 12th man right there. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and then they, they they come up big. You know, they count how many offsides they they cause during the course of a season, and, and they're way ahead of everybody else in the league. All right. So look, Raiders are not in the playoffs. Yes. I just thought I'd mention that. Okay. <laughs> so who are you looking at this year for the Super Bowl? Who do you think is going to go all the way? Uh, well, you know, uh, they're, they're about, you know, you can never discount the Patriots because of Tom Brady, uh, without a question in my mind. Carolina obviously has had a tremendous season and only one loss. Uh, Arizona, I think, uh, might be the sleeper of them all. Uh, Green Bay, uh, although they struggled the last three, four games of the season, they bounced back very strongly last week. You didn't mention Seattle. Uh, and Seattle, you know, they're a sleeper. They've got some injuries, though. Uh, you know, the tight end, Graham, they got from uh, New Orleans is out. Uh, but they're very, very good defensively, and Russell Wilson is the kind of guy that makes things happen. He's incredible. He, I went to the University of Wisconsin, so I was watching him play there. And right. he, was, he was amazing. He only played one year there, you know. And, he, you know, he makes a difference. He's, you know, you got him trapped, you got him tracked. And, he, and he they want to avenge what happened last year. They do. You know, I thought they had that game won. And they thought they had that game won. Yeah, and the thing is, you know, your best player in the backfield, uh, uh, the running back, you got to give it to him. Make him let him make a, a play for you. Uh, in, personally, I wouldn't have thrown in that situation, uh, but they did. Well, easy to say now. <laughs> oh, of course. You know, we're all Monday, Monday morning quarterbacks. That's, that's the nature of the game. You did what? Yeah, yeah that's right. All right. What's the biggest surprise? Because, listen, this neighborhood where we are right now, when people come to visit you who've never been to California, let alone San Jose, what's the biggest surprise for them? Uh, just, you know, for me, it's, you know, well, I've never been here. Well, just the technology, technological aspect of the entire city. You know, everywhere you go, it's it's high-tech this, high-tech that. Uh, uh, you know, I've seen it grow grown from farmland and ranch land to the city it's become today with the center of the world basically on, in technology located right here in you know Santa Clara Valley and uh, uh, you know it's, it says it speaks a lot to you know San Jose and what they've done and how they've grown 
And you've seen it all happen because you, you grew up right here. I, I certainly did. You know, I was a kid, a young kid, you know, picking fruit way back when for 17 cents a buck. It was a tough way to make a living. Picking but, what? What kind of fruit? Uh, apricots, mostly, you know. Uh, and it took a long time to, to, you know, reach that dollar. But uh, I did it. Do you eat apricots? I do. I eat everything. Yeah. Okay. But people I know who pick the fruit after a while say, oh, get never again. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, you know, I, uh, I love to eat. And do you still throw the football? I still throw the football. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. I am a passenger. You know, whenever I visit a city, every once in a while, if I'm lucky, I actually bump into somebody who's not just from that city, but loves that city, who's a uh, not just an advocate for that city, but ambassador as well. And my next guest certainly fits that bill. It's Connie Martinez from SV Creates. What is SV Creates, Connie? It's a nonprofit organization dedicated to igniting the investment and engagement of our creative culture in Silicon Valley. All right. Now, that says a whole lot of things. Yeah. That I did. Okay. Now, tell me what you do. Yeah. So, we fund the arts. We have grant programs. We publish Content Magazine, which... Which I've seen. is really cool. Yeah. It's very cool. And essentially, we're, our, we're, we're trying to lift and raise the visibility and the value of the arts through the, the, our publications, but also through our ways of helping the ecosystem th- grow and thrive. But you're not just about the arts because your background was you were at the Children's Discovery Museum, too. Yes, yes. Which, which was an interactive museum, wasn't it? Absolutely. I love interactive museums. Yes. I mean, you know, when I was growing up, it was like, don't touch anything, right? You can right. only look. Right. And especially in Silicon Valley, which has the sort of DIY culture, the engineering background that it has, um, even the arts are infused with um, that kind of DIY interactivity. So when I talk about the cultural ecosystem, I include the Children's Discovery Museum. All right, so tell me something that's going to surprise me in terms of the art scene here, because to many in the outside world, you know, there's an East Coast bias that basically says there's no culture west of the Hudson River. And yet people come out here and they go, I didn't know, right? (laughs) Well, it depends on the lens in which you look at us. And so if you think about um, even the 20th century lens where it was very much the Eurocentric dominated traditional arts, and then you look at the 21st century, which is this do-it-yourself, interactive, in some ways... We're thriving in the the 20th first century and um, wouldn't compete in the 20th. Well, one of the ways I define the 21st century art is sort of a rebellious approach. That's right. And that's at the core of who Silicon Valley is. We tend to be challenging the status quo. We challenge hierarchy. And it's a lot about the creative spirit and expressing that. So... What I will say to the to the world is that Silicon Valley's art scene is alive and well. It's a matter of in, actually accessing it and being part of it. All right, let's talk about accessing it. I mean, do you have gallery evenings? I mean, are, are, we, we do. Right? We do. Is, so, is alcohol involved? Yes. I just thought I'd ask. <laughs> it's always a good ingredient for having fun. Um, 
we have First Fridays in our Sofa District in Santa downtown. Sofa Santa, means so south of First okay. area, and so there's a collection of wonderful galleries and arts organizations that bring people together. Um, you know, the first Friday of every month, so that's fun. Um, and I think what you'll see is that with all of the beautiful weather we have and the the breadth of culture that's here and cultures, the using the the outdoors for festivals, and we have every kind of festival you could imagine. Um, so it's that's and it's accessible. It's most festivals are free. Give me an example of your favorite festival. So I have two. Oh, okay, fine. And, Give me two. Yes, and one is San Jose Jazz, and what's great about San Jose Jazz, and it differentiates itself from others, is that it really is an international music festival. So people come from all over the world, but we lean towards the emerging artist as opposed to the established artist. Once again, rebellious. Rebellious, exactly. So, um, and I particularly, I love jazz, so that's part of the reason I love the festival as well. But you see, you know, every color. And when is that? Under, that's the second weekend of August um, every year. They also do the Winter Fest as well, and that's coming up in February, actually. Um, so it's it's wonderful and accessible, and the, you see from, you know, strollers to canes at those kinds of, of um, festivals here. The other is Cinequest, which is a film festival, um, also rebellious and edgy, um, and they try to, you know, um, integrate the, the what's new in technology and, and how that's influencing film, and there's always, it's always filled with surprises as well. I mean, when I first came to San Jose, which was 44 years ago, I mean, you rolled up the sidewalk. Well, I wasn't here 44 years then ago, but that's what my, I heard. You have to take my word for it. <laughs> I believe you. It was quiet. Yes, I and, believe and you. And now you have a downtown that stays up late. It does, and it's getting stronger and better every day. And that's the other thing, back to this sort of rebellion and emerging. I think we're the emerging American city that has so much opportunity to grow. So we're far from finished, and you know what? Silicon Valleyites don't like things that are finished. No, that would, that yeah. would destroy it. That's why they always come up with another iPhone. <laughs> you got it. It's, it's a conspiracy of charger manufacturers because nothing ever fits anymore. Doesn't that just drive you nuts? It does, but they figured it out. They yeah. got us. They got us. They got us. And we're in love with those products. Check the one family, one contact the park. Contact the park. Right away. Go four two three. Adios. Amex four zero three. Contact the park. Adios. Joining me right now is somebody who worked 15 years to put together this book. Uh, he's the author of Japantown. It's a history book of Japantown right here in, in, in San Jose. Kurt Fukuda, how are you, man? Thank you. 15 Thank years, huh? 15 years. Well, I, I was raising kids, and uh, the book was kind of done in my spare time, so it took a, took a while. 
But you heard my introduction. I mean, you have a great Japantown here. Yes, it's uh, one of the three remaining Japantowns in the entire United States. The only other two are in Los Angeles and San Francisco. Well, I remember San Francisco, Japan. I've been to all of them, I guess, yeah. But all on the West Coast. Yes, yes. And, of course, if you look at the history of Japantown in anywhere of those cities in California, you have to go back to World War II and all the internment camps, too. Right, and you even have to go further back. Uh, the Japantown actually grew out of San Jose Chinatown. In fact, we're here at the Fairmont Hotel. If you can imagine, back in 1870, this was three blocks of wooden, wooden buildings. This was San Jose Chinatown, but it burned down, and they moved it north to uh, 6th Street and Jackson. And then it became? It, it became uh, San Jose Chinatown, Heinlandville, built by John Heinlein. When the Japanese started coming to the United States, they settled in Chinatown because it was an Asian-friendly community. And sooner or later, you had Japanese merchants and then the immersion of Japantown. And today, how many people are we talking about? Um, You know, before the war, the census said there were about uh, 3,500 Japanese in, in the valley here. And, and when the war happened, they moved them out. Right. They were all interned. Most of them went to Heart Mountain, uh, the internment camp at Heart Mountain. And during those years, Japantown was like a ghost town. Uh, there were a few uh, Chinese and Filipino residents who took over the shops, but it was pretty much empty. And the Japanese were allowed to return in 1945. And when they did, uh, there was a lot of agriculture here in the valley, A lot of Japanese from all over the state started coming to San Jose and Santa Clara Valley, and you found that the population actually doubled for Japanese-American after the war. But when they came back, what was their welcome like? Ah, okay. I'm not saying that people were necessarily welcoming them with open arms. There was a lot of prejudice. Uh, But the Santa Clara Valley was known to be a little bit more tolerant of Japanese-American. This is why you had Japanese from the Central Valley, uh, from Salinas especially, that came, uh, relocated here after the war. And they built it back up. They built it back up. Many of them uh, went went back into farming. Uh, Some of them became merchants. Uh, I was very surprised when I did research on the book how many of them couldn't get professional jobs. It wasn't until the 1950s that you actually saw Japanese becoming like uh, engineers and things like that. Now, you grew up, what, in Chinatown, right? I, I grew up in uh, on the east side of San Jose, which is actually a Portuguese-Mexican uh, neighborhood, but I had... Of an, course it is. <laughs> I knew that. <laughs> Everyone knows that. Yeah. And uh, But I had an uncle who was a barber in San Jose, Japantown, so uh, my, my parents, you would take me to Japantown, so I was well acquainted with all the shops down here, and I had to go to Sunday school at the Buddhist temple, so, uh, you know, I was there every Sunday. What's changed? What's changed is that... In you know, as as people moved out to the suburbs, you see the Japanese population dwindling in San Jose, Japantown. So, right now, it's more of a pan-Asian type community. It's very mixed, and the Japanese are actually kind of a minority there. But you still have the Japanese shops. You know, San Jose, Japantown is a real living community that serves the Asian population. They go there to buy things. They go there for 
you know, socializing. It, it's not, it's really not a tourist destination. But if the smart travelers will go? Yes, if they go, they will see the beautiful Buddhist temple based on a temple that you could, you could find in Kyoto. Um, they would see the Japanese American Museum. Uh, they would go to the greatest manju shop in the world. Manju being? Manju being a confection made of mochi and red. Oh, we got mochi sweet. going on? Okay, oh, I'm there. Okay, I'm and, there. And the best, best tofu in the world. If you are sitting next to a small child or someone who is acting like a small child, please do us all a favor and put on your mask first. You know, earlier in the hour, we were talking to uh, Connie Martinez about SV Creates, about this amazing art scene, the gallery scene here in, in San Jose, wildly different than the San Jose I remember, uh, where they used to roll up the sidewalks late at night, late at night being 6 o'clock, by the way. Uh, joining me now, and, and one, by the way, one of the things we talked about with Connie is, is, is the rebellious nature of the art movement here, um, how it's, it's, it's not the traditional as much as it is cutting-edge and making a statement. And joining me now, somebody who knows a little bit about that. She's the uh, the founder of Anno Domini, and uh, uh, really, it's all about street art, isn't it? And it's, and her name is uh, Sherry Lakey. How are you? Good morning. Hello. How are you? I'm okay. I mean, when we talked about you know art, the art scene in San Jose being somewhat rebellious, you would agree with that? Absolutely. And I think that a lot of that is out of necessity. Um, San Jose 40 years ago was pretty much orchards and so we've grown up very very fast as a city and and what is it that makes a city so I think the foundation was really smartly built by city leaders Uh, there was a lot of nonprofits so we had a ballet and a symphony and a museum of art and then there's this whole new um, you know influx of of artists and innovators and creators that wanted also to have some individuality and, and uniqueness so just probably most recently within the last 10 years has independent galleries popped up and they found a home they have found a home and uh, it, it, it's they're, they're making it better every day what's the biggest surprise to you about how, about how fast it's grown and, and the direction it's gone how quickly um, it it kind of skyrocketed in in terms of all these little pebbles being thrown in the pond do you know what I mean the ripples going out but how quickly we were talking about being priced out. Yeah. Uh, just because, you know, global markets and everything that's going on. And, and so we're, we didn't really get to enjoy a long stretch of um, that sort of indie arts. But, but again, they are rebellious and they're relentless and no one is going anywhere. They want to stay here and they want to ride it out. And it's now accessible. And trying to be accessible, yes. I mean, the, the, these artists are very one-on-one with a broad, broad community. It's amazing. You know, I, I'm, I'm going to give you two words that drive me nuts, okay? These are the two words that drive me nuts, and, 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 and you'll get a kick out of it, right? Starving artist, right? Um, right. Because it's been commercialized, you know? Oh, coming to the starving artist fair, you know? Stop. These days, what I see are artists who are much more uh, aware of their environment, much more aware of the business aspects of what they're doing, um, and they can still do their rebellious art. They can still make their expressions, but they're not using that as an excuse. Correct. Uh, at least most of them that we know and that we work with, they realize they're very, very savvy. 
Um, they know that they should do their art from a passionate place because that's what's going to stand the test of time. But there's also this this livability issue. Um, and so they piece it together. Um, for example, we're actually a graphic design company so that we can afford to do our gallery on a level that we want to do it without a board or a nonprofit. Right. And your gallery is accessible to anybody walking down the streets who want to come in, on, let's say, on a Friday night. And, Absolutely. Right? First Friday nights are really, really big. We do a whole art walk uh, with 20 participants. It's amazing. Okay. I'm going to give you another another stupid experience. You ready? I'm a big fan of Madison, Wisconsin, because they've got the best farmer's market in the country, and they surround the Capitol building, and they have a rule there that you can't exhibit at the farmer's market unless you're the actual farmer. So when you go to see the guy who made the cheese, he's actually the guy or she's actually the woman who made the cheese, right? And then you go there and go, wow, I love that. Let me buy this. Let me buy this. And you go, well, do you take credit cards? No. And what's that? Or you, would you ship? Why would we do that, Right. We're, we're, we're very, um, in fact, we, we kind of see ourselves also in a mentorship role where it's why make these artists reinvent that business wheel. So we do, we prepare them with ways to accept credit card, uh, whether it's PayPal or Square. Yeah, now they just, they, just, they, just, they just slide the card. Absolutely, yeah. and how to ship out artwork, you know, because it's, it had a packet and Yeah, but you see, now you've, now you've given me the real dangerous thing because mm-hmm. now you've not only made it accessible... You, I, you can say, oh, and we'll ship it. And now I go, uh-oh, I guess I better buy it now. You have yeah. to. You yeah. actually have to. Because <laughs> we, we realized when we started Anno Domini in 2000, we realized that we actually couldn't uh, depend on local community with the street art that we do. Because most people, there's a big debate as to whether street art was real art anyway. Right. So we um, made a real conscious effort to be global right away because we knew our uh, people that would resonate with the work that we were doing, like with Shepherd Ferry and all these amazing street artists um, were in, in small, tiny pockets all over the world. So how do we reach them? And, my and you're pa- starting a network now. <clears throat> yeah, and my partner, uh, he found a, a blog software before it was called that by a guy who was really depressed and just wanted to talk about himself. And um, so we incorporated that with But images. now, smart travelers who are going to come to San Jose, first Fridays, right? Right. Plug in really quickly. If you can find us, we will point you to a, a dozen, two dozen, three dozen other venues to go to within walking distance. I love it. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. 
the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. 